Support for this episode comes from the University of San Francisco's SWIG program in Jewish Studies and Social Justice, better known as JSSJ. As trailblazers in formally linking Jewish studies with social justice, JSSJ is excited to announce the first-ever graduate-level certificate in JEDI, Justice, Equity, Diversity, and Inclusion. This unique program gives professionals the opportunity to learn from scholars and activists, offering a blend of academic study and real-world application. So whether you want to expand your knowledge for personal development, boost skills and techniques in your classroom, or bring invaluable JEDI skills to your organization, this program will give you all the necessary tools and resources. Fall classes begin on August 27th. Learn more and apply now at usfca.edu jedi. This is Judaism Unbound, episode 384, Before Bat Mitzvah, a prequel. Welcome back, everyone. I'm Dan Liebenson. And I'm Lex Rofberg. And as you know, we just wrapped up a series of episodes looking at the past, present, and future of the B-Mitzvah. We were inspired to have that conversation because it was the 100th anniversary of the very first American Bat Mitzvah. But it occurred to us that because the first American Bat Mitzvah occurred in 1922, we only started looking at the history of girls coming of age in America, in American Judaism, at that time in 1922, when the first Bat Mitzvah occurred. But there were Jewish young people coming of age in America before that. So we decided that maybe we should do a little bit of a prequel episode looking at how Jewish girls came of age, Jewishly and generally, before the Bat Mitzvah even existed. And fortunately enough, there is a wonderful scholar named Melissa Clapper who wrote a book about exactly that topic. It's called Jewish Girls Coming of Age in America, 1860 to 1920. And while we stand by the claim that this is a prequel episode, it's also okay to see it as a kind of a sequel in the sense that it focuses largely on Jewish girls coming of age as adolescents in their teen years, just after the 12 and 13 year old age that is today most commonly associated with the bat mitzvah. So in that sense, it's a bit of a sequel. It's looking at an older age. We love when the lines blur together between past, present, and future, so that an episode that's both a prequel and a sequel feels totally on brand for us. So now a little bit about our guest today, Melissa Clapper. She is professor of history and director of women's and gender studies at Rowan University. Melissa Clapper is the author of the book that we're discussing today, Jewish Girls Coming of Age in America, 1860 to 1920, as well as Small Strangers, the Experiences of Immigrant Children in the United States, 1880 to 1925, and Ballots, Babies, Banners of Peace, American Jewish Women's Activism, 1890 to 1940, which won the National Jewish Book Award in Women's Studies. Melissa Clapper's most recent book is Ballet Class, an American History. Melissa Clapper's scholarship has been awarded grants and fellowships from an array of sources, including the American Jewish Archives, the Hadassah Brandeis Institute, the National Endowment for the Humanities, the Schlesinger Library on the History of Women at Harvard University, and the YIVO Institute for Jewish Research. We are thrilled to welcome her today for, I think, what is our first prequel episode on Judaism Unbound. So, Melissa Clapper, welcome to Judaism Unbound. It's so great to have you. Delighted to be here. Thanks for having me. So we've just concluded this series of episodes on Bat Mitzvah, the B Mitzvah, and the thing that I have been thinking about a lot is whether the B mitzvah really makes sense in society today, because is it really marking something that's happening to these kids outside of the Jewish context, or is it only marking something that's happening within the Jewish context? In other words, are they really coming of age today? And so I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about the period that your book talks about, the late 19th century, the early 20th century, what was really happening in terms, not of the Jewish part, but of the general part? What is going on in the life of girls in this period of time that maybe, maybe not, we should have a Jewish ceremony to somehow mark? Well, let me just say that this time period, the late 1800s into the early 1900s, is a moment when there are a lot of changes in what passes as coming of age for lots of different groups of people. This is not something that was necessarily happening worldwide for all people and all cultures. But in an industrializing world in which work was increasingly removed from the home, something that had really happened before the Civil War, what it meant to come of age and move from one stage of life into another was really in flux. 
you really have a lot of people thinking about, well, what does it mean to come of age? What are the stages of life? What should young people be doing? So even though there's no such thing as teenagers during this period, that term is not in use yet, the term adolescence is in development during this period. Toward the end of the 19th century, a psychologist and sort of philosopher, a thinker named G. Stanley Hall, publishes a book in 1904 called Adolescence. It actually has a much longer subtitle that I'd have to look up, but it is reflective of the uh, thinking that was going on, certainly not only or primarily even in Jewish circles, about what it meant to have a stage of life between childhood and adulthood. What would that stage of life be? Who would experience it? Would boys and girls experience it differently? That actually was not of that much interest to G. Stanley Hall. He was mostly interested in boys. But that led a lot of educators to think about girls, too. Well, if this is all about boys, then what's happening with girls? What is this stage of life? What do we expect from our young people? And this is really one of the interesting things that happens during this period is that there are, there's a growing belief that this is a moment when young people need to sort of individuate, to become independent. And even if the expectation was that they would more or less replicate their parents' lives as best they could, still... The expectations for adult lives were also changing in this moment. One of the ways you see this is with increasing numbers of laws in states all over the United States about who has to go to school. Because although there had always been some, there had been laws since the 1840s about who had to be at school, but the enforcement started to pick up. And so generally speaking, and I'm speaking, these are very broad strokes. You know, the idea was that kids should be in school until they were about 14. 14 became an age for a lot of things during this period. It also became the age of consent in terms of sexual relationships at the same moment. More, you know, Again, different in different states. It was higher or lower. It was much lower in some states, particularly in the South. But this idea that there's a moment, and, you know, kids should be kids up to a certain point. And what happens to them after that would be very dependent on all kinds of things, including primarily race, class, and gender. Poor kids would need to go to work when they turn 14. African-American kids didn't have options of extended schooling in many places, even after emancipation. And so 14, again, in very broad strokes, becomes something of a marker for how old kids should be before they have to make decisions about what comes next. And so a discussion about the growth of Jewish education, for instance, is very much part of this larger conversation about stages of life, who counts as a child, who counts as an adult how is that marked in legal terms, but also in social and educational terms? Is that age of 14 based on science or just opinion? That's a good, you would, If you would ask them at the time, they might have said science, but of course, it was really more opinion. Age is always arbitrary. That's just the bottom line. Age is arbitrary. People didn't really pay attention to their birthdays until the early 19th century. I mean, of course, there were exceptions, but you know, a lot of people didn't really know how old they were. So it's arbitrary in that sense. But that arbitrariness gets challenged a little bit. There's this idea that 13, 14, like this really is an age when there is a change. There's no reason why a healthy 14-year-old working class boy can't be at work. Now, again, it is arbitrary. It's a good question because earlier, for instance, in coal mining families or in mining families of all kinds, both in the old world and in the new world, boys were seen as old enough to go down the mine when they were five, six, or seven. And there was no question that those boys would get an education. No, they wouldn't. This was not their destiny. Their destiny was to be a coal miner. And so you know, they could do certain jobs. In fact, there were jobs that only young children could do. And although we would, I think, tend to look at this period and think, well, this is great. More kids have to be in school. Young people aren't expected to work as much. That's great. But if you're a poor immigrant family and you can't put food on the table, you don't actually want a school truant officer chasing after your 13 or 14 year old. You might want and need that child to be working and not at school. And so there's a lot of contestation over who's old enough and who gets to decide that, who gets to decide. And increasingly, the state and government gets to decide. So first off, shouts to a beloved teacher of mine, Howard Chudikoff, who's actually deep in the conversation about the history of birthdays. He was one of my first teachers in college. He just retired. He's been my inspiration in a lot of the work I do to mark things that people see as leisure or fun or just like to the side as actually very important to history and to Judaism. Mm -hmm. So shouts to Howard Chudikoff. Mm -hmm. Okay, though. So I, I'm really interested in what's come up so far, but I, I kind of want to back out and just ask about when I go to scholarly conferences, they're always talking about the interventions that they're making. It's a word that comes up a lot 
And I, I actually kind of like it. I imagine gathering an intervention for like somebody who has some addiction and like you're saying, here's, a, here's what you need to change. And like, if we actually thought of every book as like gathering the set of previous scholars that have written whatever they've written and like you, the author, Melissa Clapper, are saying like, here's what you need to change. Here's what needs to be different. What are the interventions here? The sense I got as a reader is that you are being really conscious in this book of a few things historically in scholarship that have not been done well. And one of those is whether children themselves, whether their voices have been given enough of a microphone in history. Mm -hmm. Most of the time, I think my answer would be no. We don't hear from children themselves, especially girls, but we don't hear even from boys sometimes. And part of what your book seems to be intervening on is, ah, we should actually include their voices themselves, not Mm -hmm. just people talking about them. What were some of the other interventions to use that beloved uh, scholarship word, scholarly world in in a context like ours that is bridging scholarship to other folks? Jewish Girls Coming of Age in America, the book we're discussing, is a revision of my dissertation. So I got a doctorate in American women's history, but I always knew I wanted to write about Jewish, something Jewish. And I also was very interested in the history of education. The intersection of those things ended up being Jewish girls, their education, their religious lives, their social lives, and what kind of impact that had on the American Jewish community and on the larger story that not that many people had told about girls in America and by extension childhood in America. And so I found myself actually at a moment when a new field, a new scholarly field was in development, and that is the history of childhood and youth. There were people like Howard Tudikoff who had been written about that before the late 90s, but as a field, it was really taking off. And in fact, there was a major conference in 2000 that I attended as a graduate student that was sort of a launching for what is now the Society for the History of Childhood and Youth. The mission statement, so to speak, of that group was that children matter and that children matter in more than one direction. The treatment of children, the the laws around children, the expectations around children, what we might call the prescriptive history of childhood, what children should be doing, what childhood should be like. An idea, for instance, that childhood should be innocent, which was a creation of the 19th century and did not exist before that. That was important. The other piece, though, was that children matter, not just childhood, not just the prescriptive ideas about what those lives should be like, but what those lives were actually like. And the only way to really know that was to look for the voices of children themselves. Girls' voices often weren't heard, and all the more so Jewish girls' voices had not been heard. And in fact, several people, when I started working on what became my dissertation and then this book, said to me, I don't know if you're going to find any sources at all. What kinds of sources could you possibly find? Well, I'm 475 pages later of my dissertation. Uh, It is short. The book is shorter. Listeners, fear not. Um, I found a lot of sources. There's all kinds of sources. This is just like women's history, African-American history, the history of any marginalized group. As soon as you start looking for sources in history, you find them. For me, it was diaries, scrapbooks, letters, postcards, clothing, songs, um, skits, It's not that they weren't there. It's that nobody had ever paid attention to them. I like to listen to voices that no one has ever heard before. And that's really especially important when you're writing about Jewish history, because American women's history does not have a lot of time for Jewish history. And modern Jewish history doesn't always have a lot of time for American history. And American history doesn't always have a lot of time for Jewish history. And so as a social historian, as a historian of women, and as a historian of childhood, um, writing about Jewish girls was a way in for all of that. And so if I had to claim an intervention, I guess that's what it would be. We've been having in our previous episodes looking at bat mitzvah, be mitzvah more generally, we've been having a lot of prescript and I defend like this is good. We've been having a lot of like should conversations. What should be mitzvah look like? And what we have spent less time on is just what are the set of things that today 12 and 13 year olds of whatever gender are doing to grow and become whatever they're becoming, adults, next stage, post-puberty, et cetera. I'm curious, like, I soaked in from your book a few different things. You mentioned how at 14, one of the things descriptively that people were doing was they were starting to go to school for a little longer. One of the things descriptively is some were still not going to school and they were entering the workplace. You had one really interesting part of your book where you talked about people going off to like Europe for periods of time and being formed in ways that sounded to me not totally different from like gap years or study abroad that, I mean, obviously different time, not exactly the same, but 
it felt resonant with things that I'm familiar with now. Can you talk us through just, there was no bat mitzvah at this point. So the answer to how did a Jewish girl come of age Jewishly or, or generally, the answer to that was not. They had a ritual in a synagogue where they changed from status A to status B. And yet we have to be able to say descriptively that a bunch of people who were at one point girls grew up and became women. So what did that look like? Can you talk us through like some of the kinds of things that marked people's transformations from a child stage of life to those adolescent and next stages in life? One thing I do want to say is that there was a ritual and that was confirmation. Right. Confirmation existed within American Reform Judaism. It existed before the Civil War, and it continued to exist in the period I'm writing about after the Civil War. By the post-Civil War period, probably the majority of American Reform synagogues, although not all of them still. Um, also, it is important to sort of stipulate that in the time period I'm writing about, denominations weren't what they are now. There was a capital R reform movement. But not until the very early 20th century was there a sort of capital C conservative movement that grew up around um, the Jewish Theological Seminary after Solomon Schechter came to the United States in the very earliest years. And there's not a capital O orthodoxy either. And so I do want to say that while also saying that there is a capital R reform movement and many of those synagogues had confirmations. Confirmations um, were subject to a lot of critique. <laughs> But they were for slightly older. They were they were definitely a move away from the traditional idea of a bar mitzvah at the age of 13. And the Jewish halachic or the Jewish legal designation of 12 as a marker, a line of demarcation for girls that le- who legally became women in Jewish law at 12, even before there was such a thing as, quote, a bat mitzvah, there was still an age of bat mitzvah at 12 in ter- legal halachic terms. And confirmation was sort of a remedy to that to say, okay, here we are in the 19th century. We're all modern now. Nobody is coming of age at 12 or 13. This, this needs to be older. And so confirmation was for 15 or 16 year olds more typically. And there, so that means that there were some American Jewish girls who participated in confirmation ceremonies. And in fact, more girls than boys did, partially because fewer boys were still in some kind of formal schooling environment, whether that was a religious, a Jewish education of some kind or just a regular secular education. And so it was hard to hold on to them, to keep them in some kind of confirmation class when they might be earning a living for the rest of their day. If you look at pictures of confirmation classes from the early 20th century, you see that the girls far outnumber the boys. This may be a surprise to some people. You think, you know, usually boys get opportunity, more opportunities earlier but in fact, far more girls than boys were graduating from high school, say, in 1900, because more boys were at work and more girls, the understanding was they weren't ready to get married yet. They needed something to do with their time. So it extended education became that. And that operated in different ways. It could be public education for some Jewish girls. It could be private education, including in some Jewish schools. There weren't a lot of what we might now call day schools, but there were some and there were more sort of private academies for upper class or upper middle class Jewish girls. And then, as you pointed out, Lex, there were also in wealthier families and families that had maintained very close ties to their relatives back in usually Western Europe, sometimes would send their girls back for education. That's not a very large percentage, but it it is another sort of coming of age ritual for girls from a certain kind of well-to-do Jewish family in the United States. So there's education as a marker. There is a religious ritual available to some, but there's not a whole lot of other specific rituals. There's biological markers, right? There's you know the age when girls would first start to menstruate, which was much, much later in the late 19th century than it is now. The average age of what's called menarche first menstruation was much later in the late 1800s than it is now. It was 15 or 16 was actually the average. And that did not go down until well into the 20th century. So there too, 12, right, the historic Jewish legal idea that 12 means that you're grown up did not seem to apply to people's biological reality, let alone their education and their social lives. And I just want to add here that a major determining factor is class, how long they could get an education, what kind of education they had access to, when they would start work, what kind of work they would do. This was true for boys and for girls, um, and it really has an impact. And of course, class doesn't operate on its own. It's always operating in relation to gender and to race. 
So the experiences of African-American kids during this time quite different than white kids. And so all of these things are constantly in um, operation with each other. And that was true for Jewish girls too, but their Jewishness per se, except for those who had a confirmation, was probably not the most important determining factor about when most of them felt that they moved from childhood to adulthood. It's so interesting to hear you talk about this because I feel like the way that I grew up was that, well, girls uh, mature earlier than boys, so that's why they have a bat mitzvah at 12 and boys only have a bar mitzvah at 13. And somehow this was meant to sound like some kind of praise of girls in some way that I don't think I understood at the time. What's interesting to reflect on, though, is just the idea that confirmation in this period was actually later for girls for a completely different reason. Like, basically, as I understood you, they were available they were available for learning because the boys were already off at work. And so the point is, is that, you know, we sort of have assumptions about why certain Jewish rituals are located in certain ages, but perhaps some of those assumptions are wrong. Bar mitzvah was also seen as being sort of silly, in the, you know, by many people, certainly by reformers, okay, capital and lowercase r, who said, you know, here we are in the 19th century, a 13-year-old is not an adult, period, end of sentence, like might be ritually an adult, okay, only a Jewish ritual marker. It is has nothing to do with their social status and what they are, what they can and cannot do. Same thing for 12, whether you have a bat mitzvah or not, it's not the point, same thing, like 12 is just not, what difference does being 12 make to, to most girls' actual lives? The idea behind confirmation was it makes much more sense to wait till people are older and they can make more informed decisions and they can choose how they would, you know, what their religious lives are going to be like in a more informed way. So let's just delay it. It'll become it'll be more meaningful. Yeah. And I'm thinking like today, I, I feel like, you know, Lex has actually talked a lot about how he made a bar 26 for himself when he turned 26. But actually, now that I'm thinking about how when you're 26, that's when you have to go off your parents' health insurance for <laughs> Obamacare, like that's actually an important marker, you know, of, of adulthood, right? Because I'm thinking about my own children who are 20 and 17, and I'm thinking like, when are they really going to be adults? And I'm thinking like 26 actually makes a lot of sense because that's when they're going to really have to fend for themselves in a certain way. And, and again, it's all arbitrary. What makes you an adult? Oh, okay, you're old enough to vote. Well, that's changed in the not so distant past. That changed from 21 to 18. You know, you're old enough to drink. Well, there's, you know, movements underway to change that. And it's not the same in every, in every place. Like, what is it that makes you an adult? You, ha- you know, there used to be sociologists used to have, I think it's five markers of adulthood. I, I don't know if I'm going to be able to repeat them all here. It's finishing your education getting a job, moving out of your parents' house, getting married and having children. <laughs> those mm-hmm. are the five. Well, not everyone does all of those things anymore at all. <laughs> and they are done at much later stages than used to be the case. It used to be that, you know, by the time you were 21, especially for a woman, maybe 23 for a man, let's say in the immediate post-World War II era, that's probably when you'd be checking all those things off. Well, that's not true anymore which is one of the reasons why, by the way, people are on their parents' health insurance until 26, because there's a recognition that you're not going to finish your education and you might not be able to find a job and that you're not necessarily, and that's not necessarily failure to launch. It's just that the markers that used to sort of demarcate adulthood don't anymore necessarily. And so confirmation, which again, it gets critiqued in a lot of ways, but the idea of it was, well, why does it have to be fixed? There's this moment where we can make a change. We can make a change to what has been the past. I'm with you on this. It is arbitrary. What I struggle with is, so there is this tendency to say, well, if we do, because age is arbitrary, we tie it to various things, voting it. I mean, you just listed them off wonderfully. From my perspective, the so what of that is very important because I think lurking underneath this question of when does one, quote unquote, become an adult? Like, spoiler, not only do I think that's arbitrary, I don't think there is one answer. I think that's where my rebellion is coming from. Like, I don't think there's a hidden moment, an age marker, or even within one person, like one thing that they do, a moment where they transition from non-adult to adult. Like, I'm kind of rebelling against that notion because I think that there's a lot tied to the idea that if you're not an adult, what that means is that you should lack a certain set of both opportunities and responsibilities. And that's where all the complicated stuff comes in. When when we're arguing about when is somebody adult, we're not just saying like, when do we think 
philosophically. Ah, when is somebody an adult? Like, that's an interesting question. We're arguing about when should people be given the right to go to a ballot box and determine their their legislative leaders? We're arguing about who should be allowed to hold a steering wheel and press a gas pedal and potentially endanger their own lives and others. We're not having like, like that's what we're talking about. But that's not really, in my view, a question of is somebody an adult in like a grand across the board sense. It's a different set of questions. So I wanted to bring that up because I think it ties to debates that Dan and I have had a little bit about be mitzvah and confirmation. Because um, I actually, I find myself to be a defender against the critics. You mentioned there's there's critics both. Uh, so you mentioned the critics of confirmation. Today, there are critics of be mitzvah as well. And what's ironic is their their criticisms are very similar. You have wonderful quotes in your book about how in the late 1800s, early 1900s, people are saying, ugh, confirmation. It's all about the party. People don't focus on the ritual. They just have these fancy parties. And it's it, sound familiar? Find your neighborhood Jewish educator. They're probably saying that about be mitzvah now, about bat mitzvahs, bar mitzvahs, etc. Oh, they're rented out these country clubs and they're not focused on the Torah stuff. From my perspective, all of that points to a set of questions, not about when one is an adult, but what is the purpose of life cycle markers? What, what is the purpose of a confirmation? And I actually find myself looking back at that early stage and thinking, there's a set of good purposes here. I'm not sure on the execution, but this transparently was meant to be gender diverse. It was meant to include girls in Jewish learning in a time where they were not empowered to be rabbis, certainly. They weren't empowered to be many forms of Jewish communal leadership. And I find that when we, I'm a part of many different, you know, online communities, whatever, that talk about confirmation, be mitzvah and other things. And I find that we're quick to jump on, oh, that's no good. And people are quick to say it comes from Christianity and its origins. That's where confirmation comes from. And I guess part of my question is, maybe that's true. In what ways are the, the Jewish realities of this time period, 1860 through 1920, in what ways are they being refracted through Protestant Christian lunges in America through through like prisms that are not just, you know, Jews in their own vacuum. But I guess and maybe this is not a question you as a scholar will answer as much. If a cool idea that empowers girls in a way that they were not empowered before, like if that idea comes to pass, is it a bummer or is it okay that it comes from some other religious context? Uh, I just want to start actually from something you just said um, toward the end of that set of questions about you know, what's the Jewish experience in this period kind of in, in relationship to the majority culture, which is clearly Protestant? And that is a very significant question. We are not talking about a large Jewish population, especially during the earlier part of the period that I cover in this book. In 1880, let, let's call it 250,000 Jews in America. Okay, that, I'm not saying that number is exactly right, but we're not talking, we're talking about very, very small group of people. Now, that group of people in 1880 had developed all kinds of institutions and organizations and schools and educational policies. And as we just already discussed, you know, reform, American reform. It's not like it was not an active community, but marginalized is not even, it's not even on, it's not even on the same page, on the right page to be marginalized. This is a tiny, tiny community. And so everything they do is within the context of we are a very small group. There is always anti-Semitism. And that's just a fact. Um, very rarely, although not never, is it violent in the United States. Although, and anti-Semitism actually got worse after 1880 than it had been. But still, it's something that is on their mind all the time. Plus, American Jews are very well aware of what goes on in the rest of the world. And so anti-Semitism is never far from their mind. And so they, you know, the communities had already made a set of decisions about what they were going to do in general about education for their children, for instance. So um, my mentor, Jonathan Sarna, has written extensively about this, about decisions that were made in the antebellum and that era and then right after the Civil War. You know, were American Jews going to take up what he calls the Protestant model or the Catholic model of education for their children? The Catholic model being separate schools, parochial schools, often tied to parishes. Public schools during this period were not non-denominational. They were Protestant and they were often missionizing. And so there was actually a threat non-Protestant kids in sending them to the public schools, a very real threat. And so it's not so surprising that you find that there were, in fact, Jewish schools for children in this period. But the vast majority of American Jews opted for the so-called Protestant model of using the public schools for the most of the education of their children and then providing supplemental Jewish education. 
what came to be known as Sabbath schools or Sunday schools starting in 1838, actually that early with Rebecca Gratz founding the Hebrew Sunday School Society in Philadelphia. And then um, after in the later 1800s, because of a lot of critiques of that model, it was too supplemental. How much could you actually teach anybody? Two hours a week? Very little. Um, a, the development of a different model of supplemental education called the Talmud Torahs, which were much more intensive, although still supplemental and a maximum of 10 hours a week. And so there's all these questions about how to maintain Judaism in a country in which there's just very little institutional support for it. And it was a constant, something else that is resonant with some of the questions you just asked, Lex, there's a constant doom and gloom. Why don't more Jewish parents send their kids to Jewish schools? You know, we, we kind of think of this um, idea as like, oh, you know, that if any moment you look at in American Jewish history, you're going to find moaning and groaning about that. So even though we've talked about confirmation, that's a small number of a very small number. So it can't function as a coming of age, as the coming of age ritual when most people weren't doing it. And also, we shouldn't get too excited about the fact that it was open to girls. That's great. Right. Yay. Except that the reason really it's open to girls is because they knew they would not have confirmation without girls for the reasons I've already discussed. Mm -hmm. And so that's not necessarily a proactive. Oh, we definitely have to educate girls as much as if we don't educate girls, we won't be able to get this going at all. I'm curious about the fact that, like, I think that around the beginning of the period you're talking about is when rabbis start showing up in America. I mean, this is one thing that really struck me. I think when I read Jonathan Sarna's book, American Judaism, that for the first 150 years or so of America, there were no rabbis here. And so what what was Jewish life like before and after the rabbis started showing up and then later became ordained in America. Is there a, a sense that you have about how rabbis or other, let's say, Jewish authority figures were reacting to the way that Jewish life was like in America compared to what it was like in Europe? Well, Jewish life in America was a free for all because <laughs> anybody could do anything that anybody wanted to do and nobody could tell them not to or to. Sounds awesome. <laughs> I mean, there was just no That's like the end you know, of the book of Judges. You know, everybody did what was right in his own yeah. eyes. <laughs> Hopefully it doesn't, it doesn't, it didn't end up in quite that level of uh, violence, destruction, <laughs> terror, and just sheer awfulness. <laughs> but um, yeah, yeah it, they, they're just, you know, it's a free society. And it is why Jews are attracted to the United States if they decide to leave. Immigration historians talk about both push and pull factors, the push factors that make people say, okay, time to go. So for instance, in many of the Germanic states of Central Europe, um, there was a quota on how many Jewish couples could get married in any given year. And that just was not sustainable for community life. That's a push factor. We got to go, right? We can't, we can't grow here. They're not letting us grow here as a community because not too many people can get married. The pull factor is why, you know, why do you go where you go? And the United States had a lot of pull factors. There was, you know, open economy, but for Jews, the fact that there was no institutional life was appealing to some, or it just didn't matter to others. Because again, you know, one of the myths is that, oh, everybody in the old country was all pious in the traditional way. And that's a bunch of malarkey too. And so, you know, the early religious functionaries, some of them were fairly knowledgeable, but you know, there was no judgment in Israel, I guess, you know, to, you, to, follow, to follow your quote. There was just anybody could do whatever they wanted to do. The intermarriage rate was actually higher in the antebellum period in terms of percentages, I mean, mm -hmm. than it would be again until the 1960s. There was a certain amount of social integration that was possible and for some Jewish people even desirable, although not for everyone. And so the only authority was really located in congregations and synagogue congregations. And one of the things that I should point out that's interesting about the development of Jewish education systems in America is that especially the ones started by women like the Hebrew Sunday School Society by Rebecca Gratz were not congregational. They were independent entities because the women were like sisters are going to do it for themselves we don't need this authority. We might rely on it for some things, but we don't want to be bound. And in many cases, that meant there were sort of city or community wide networks of Jewish education that were not tied to a specific congregation. Talmud Torahs typically were community and city wide in a way that by the late 19th century, more Sabbath schools might have been congregational. But remember, we're talking about through the end of the um, 1800s. In most places, there would only have been one synagogue, if there was a synagogue at all. 
the whole landscape is just extremely different. And so another thing that's notable about the period that I'm talking about, 1860 to 1920, is that as communities grew, either in urban areas where there developed multiple congregations or across the United States in parts of the South and the Midwest and the West where there were new Jewish communities being established, they had a lot of leeway in what they did and how they did it. And rabbinic authority was not at all asserted in those places, particularly in the places that had very small congregations. And so rabbis were, uh, they're not, I think it would be too strong to call them bit players, in 19th century Judaism, um, that's not true, but there's a struggle about who's going to be the authority. And it's not so clear where that's going to land. Rabbis eventually pretty much succeed, at least for a while. But remember, again, most kids, Jewish kids, aren't in any kind of Jewish education, and not everyone belongs to a congregation either. And so Jewish girls are growing up in this environment where really what their experience is like is very dependent on where they live, what their family is like how long their family has been in the United States, what their class status is, all these things come together to shape their experiences. So I hear you describe this early stage of wild, intense public debate around like, what should these institutions look like? I'm actually kind of jealous of the Jewish communities of this time, both the leaders of those communities and lay folks, just everybody around at the time. Because I feel like now, to compare it to now, people don't really debate what Sunday schools, outside of like a very small group of Jewish educators who do debate this, but like typical folks aren't thinking like, ah, what should Sunday school look like? What should the Jewish education look like? It's just like, we've inherited this landscape. We have day schools, we have Sunday schools. And to the extent there's big debates, it's about how do we keep those things strong or keep people participating in them and not like what should be happening at them? When should they be happening? Should it be 10 hours a week? Should it be a smaller number of hours a week? I mean, that's fascinating to me. And what it leads me to is what were they actually learning? What were some of the curricula like? Were they focused on Hebrew? Were they not focused on Hebrew? How were other languages playing in? Were they looking at Bible? Were they looking at Talmud? Like what was happening in these places? Hebrew was a non-starter. The vast majority of the people who taught, the women who taught, and it's very worth pointing out that the women who were teaching Sunday schools, this was revolutionary in Jewish life, like historically all over the world. It was revolutionary for Jewish women to be teaching, but they did not necessarily know that much themselves. Relatively few Jews in America knew Hebrew. That just was not, not, you know, a lot of Jews did not. In fact, only the extremely unusually well-educated Jews in the antebellum period in particular would have known Hebrew. So Hebrew was not a part of it. No one, you can't learn Hebrew two days a week. And if you spend all your time trying to teach the Hebrew alphabet, you won't learn anything else. So the concern there was for Jewish life, Jewish life and ritual, the Jewish calendar, the holidays, the basic tenets of Judaism, the ability to stave off missionaries, which to us today may not seem like a big deal, but was an extremely big deal in the 19th century when Protestants were constantly trying to proselytize Jews. And so they're learning, you know, sort of basic, what we might call basic Jewish literacy, Right. And the people would know what the rituals were in the home. People would understand what things like circumcision were and why it was important to do, (laughs) you know, what people would understand, um, you know, basic things about holidays, about texts. There were biblical texts would have been used. People could have been reading um, the Bible. There is a religious functionary who's not a rabbi, although he basically acted as a rabbi named Isaac Leeser who came to the United States in the antebellum era and then became an important religious functionary in Philadelphia at Congregation Mikveh Israel, the old, very influential Sephardic congregation there. So he made it his business to publish a traditional prayer book in English, and he actually did two versions. He published, he did English versions of both the Sephardic rite and the Ashkenazic rite, and he also published a English translation of the Hebrew Bible. And those became basic core you know, things to have in the house for American Jews of all stripes, who before that would not really have had access to English translations and certainly not to a Bible that was arranged in the traditional Jewish way, as opposed to, say, the King James Bible, which is not. The books are a little different. The, the order is different. And so this is significant. But if you look at the, la- the slightly later 19th century that I focus on in my book, it's very a lot of the learning is very rote. It's very question and answer. It's sort of memorization, all the things that general education were going to get critiqued for by the progressive educators of the early 20th century. These things are problems with Jewish education as well. 
Samson Benderly was an educator. He was a um, Sunday school educator in Baltimore, but he was an early progressive educator. And he and other like-minded individuals, including, for instance, Henrietta Zold, were worried about the state of Jewish education. They felt that it was very arid, that it was dry, that it wasn't actually persuasive or appealing at all to Jewish children. And they really thought you needed more time, you needed to study a wider range of Jewish texts, and you needed to get some Hebrew in there. And the only way to do that was through this newly developing Talmud Torah system at the end of the 19th into the 20th century, which was more hours per week, which made it possible to have just better coverage, to use the term that we might use today. So that curriculum really is quite different. Even in Talmud Torah's only a relatively small group of the most advanced students who stuck it out all the way through, let's say kindergarten through all the way through high school, if they graduated from high school, only they would actually have studied Talmud. That was just too advanced. And it's not even Hebrew. It's Aramaic. It's a whole other language. It was just too advanced. But they would have been studying the Torah. They would have been studying basic commentaries at a certain point. But only if they st- if they stuck with the program, it would take a while to be able to build up to that. And again, relatively few did that. Um, it was a more intensive form of Jewish education. And Benderly and a lot of his disciples, which included women as well as men, were not only Jewish educators, but also people who studied at Columbia in particular um, under the great progressive educators like John Dewey and Edward Thorndike, and often got dual degrees working with Mordecai Kaplan at the um, Jewish Teachers Institute. And so there's this network that goes across the United States. And that has a real impact because all those people too always included girls. They thought that it was extremely important to educate girls for themselves, but also because again, they're going to be teachers and mothers. Even though it's not always for the purest of reasons, although sometimes it is, and you do, you do have a long history in the United States of including girls in Jewish education. And that's significant. Because Jewish girls were increasingly included in many other things as well in their secular lives or in their the non-Jewish, so to speak, parts of their lives, if there was such a thing for Jewish girls, they had more and more opportunities. This moment, the late 1800s into the early 1900s, is a moment of huge opportunity for American women. It's not equal, right? Not equality, right? Women don't even get the right to vote until the last year of that period, 1920. But marriage property acts were passed so that married women could retain legal right to their property, After the Civil War, far more women, although always middle and upper class, were able to go to college. Far more girls were graduating from high school. Whole new professional categories were open to women. New jobs like librarians or social workers, jobs that had been around for a while, teachers, I mean, and nursing. There's just, there's a huge amount of change in American women's lives. And Jewish girls were affected by that. They were really impacted by that. And so one of the arguments for continuing to make sure that Jewish girls got a Jewish education was to make sure that it kept up with all the progress that was being made for them as American girls. And educators who were focused on girls, people like Henrietta Zold or her colleague Alice Seligsberg, were very cognizant of this. And they were very worried that if they didn't make sure to always include Jewish girls, why would Jewish girls be interested in Judaism? If all their opportunities were in their sec- the secular part of their world, why would they care? I'm just thinking about, as you were talking earlier, I had this question when you were describing that they didn't study Talmud and they didn't do this and they didn't do that. And I was wondering, did they feel Jewishly inadequate back then in the way that a lot of Jews articulate a sense of feeling Jewishly inadequate today? Or back then they were like, no, that's fine. That's all that Jew needs to know. We're totally awesome Jews. And that something has kind of gone wrong in a certain way today. I was thinking about how there's a similar situation today in the sense that when your average Jewish person in America, let's say, just has gone to college and has learned a lot about a lot of things, they will recognize even more that their Jewish knowledge is lacking, even though the same knowledge may have been just fine some period ago. And I'm wondering whether that's actually a a, a good way of understanding some of what we're seeing today is that it's a version of the problem that you were describing. And really the response needs to be some version. You don't, I mean, I know you're not a policy person. You don't have to say what the response needs to be, but, but as I'm hearing you, I'm thinking about, so the response needs to be to try to connect Jews to more Jewish knowledge solely because it needs to be comparable to the other knowledge that they have. Otherwise they'll just inevitably see it as kind of something that they're, not really knowledgeable enough about. And so they're just going to 
make it a lesser part of their life because it's not a part of their life where they feel really empowered? I mean, historically, most Jews were not knowledgeable, right? I mean, especially, especially text learning was just the province of the elite and the male elite. Of course, there were exceptions here and there with women, but really, Tevya, right? Tevya doesn't know anything. You know, he, he has all these quotes, you know, if you read um, Shalom Aleichem, right, where he thinks he's quoting, you know, the Torah or the Talmud, but they're wrong. But he's a milkman. <laughs> it's not his job, right? And if he says if he could do anything that he wants, right, if he were a rich man, he'd sit in the synagogue and learn all day because he doesn't learn all day. That's not the vast majority of Jews, even in very Jewish environments, were not knowledgeable. Right. There's, so that's another one of these myths that everybody used to know everything. It's just not the case. Right. You just didn't to lead a full Jewish life. You did not need to have formal Jewish learning per se, as long as there was somebody around that you could ask your questions to or not ask your questions to, as was often the case in the United States. Um, we already discussed the tussle with rabbinic authority. So as education in general reaches more people and is no longer just the province of the elite, that makes the problem of Jewish education that much more acute because of the potential misalignment that you're talking about. This moment when education is becoming more accessible to more people is really significant in Jewish history worldwide, because it is it is a turning point where you have more people educated in their secular lives. And so therefore, it, it, the contrast becomes greater than it would have been for, say, the standard semi-literate milkman in a shuttle in Poland through no fault of his own, had no access or time to get a formal education. I wanted to circle back to something we talked about at the beginning, which is, you know, your process in creating this book and how you found, despite what people told you, that when you looked, there were lots of sources. There were hundreds of pages worth of sources that you could incorporate into your research in a world where people said, oh, you're not going to find anything in the voices of Jewish girls from this time period. So that was incorrect. And I think it's more than incorrect. It's a teaching for us. We really, uh, and you already articulated this, but we really need Jewishly and forget just Jewish, American history, our world's mm -hmm. history. We, we need to be constantly exercising the muscle of looking for voices that haven't been amplified, whether that's today or historically, and amplifying them. I think like that might sound grandiose, but I think it's really important. And I wanted to name, with respect to the diaries, respect, with respect to the actual writings of the girls that you feature, I mean, it was so cool. It was such a powerful experience as a reader to have that. It was different from a lot of other kinds of books that I've read. But I wanted to name that there's something that happens there where I, as a reader, I become aware of the fact that like, huh, if I write down my diary tonight, that could matter to history in 100 years. That's kind of awesome, right? Like we think of history as engaging with often like a certain very small number of famous people, usually wealthy people, usually men, usually white. But when we choose to, and we do need to choose to, we find so much more. And so I wanted to close this episode or get towards the close of the episode by, by hearing a little bit of you, just some of the beautiful anecdotes, moments that are chronicled in these diaries, you don't need to give us like an exhaustive list, but just you had the, I assume, pleasure of exploring all of these diaries, some from people who would go on to become very famous. That's often why we have their diaries is that they became famous. And so we want to read what they were thinking as kids, but also some that didn't. What did you learn as a historian simply by hearing the words of girls who are adolescents between 1860 and 1920 in their own voices? Well, one thing I just want to say is that this point about amplifying unheard voices is really important. That's sort of my life's mission as a historian. I mentioned that I like to write about things, and, you know, people that nobody's ever written about before, because I think it is so important. And it also changes the history. It's not just an add on. In the field of women's history, and we talk about stages of women's history that happened over time. First one's what we kind of call contribution history. Oh, look, there were famous women. They did stuff too. It's like the fourth grade level where you have pictures up in the classroom during Women's History Month. Harriet Tubman and Rosa Parks and Eleanor Roosevelt and whoever, you know, name your pantheon. Henrietta's old, you know, if you're <laughs> talking about Jewish women, Rebecca Gratz. That's great. You need to know who the famous women are. But the next stage is often, you know, what we used, what they used to call, um, you know, add women and stir. Like, <laughs> you know, you're starting with a cookie. It's still, you know, if you add chocolate chips, it's still mostly a cookie, right? Ontologically, it's still a cookie. So now, you you know, it might be a slightly different looking cookie. So what did women do during the American Revolution? 
What did women do during the Civil War, right? Women were there too. What did they do? Again, that's really important. You need to know that. But really what women's and gender history is about is, okay, now we're looking at gender and we're thinking about the ways that people, you know, what does it mean to be a woman? What does it mean to be masculine or feminine? And when you start thinking about history from that perspective, does it actually change the history, change the way we understand things? So the classic example in women's history is there's a great essay by Joan Kelly called, Did Women Have a Renaissance? Did they have a renaissance? And her answer, <laughs> short version, no. <laughs> so it changes the periodization. When you start to look at things from different perspectives, it just transforms our, our understanding of history. And that's something that's really important. It's not just a question of looking at the way we always, we always thought about it and saying, oh, we also have to include these other groups. That's critically important. But once you include those other groups and you know about what they were doing, then the whole picture looks different. One of the things I saw in looking at diaries is that, first of all, unsurprisingly, adolescent girls, they might not have used the word adolescent about themselves very much, certainly not until well after 1900. They're not necessarily writing you know, huge commentary about the world around them. Right? They're more focused on their individual lives, their personal lives, their needs, their wants, their desires. But they do, what they do have that's really significant for thinking about Jewish girls is a real commitment you know, they're writing in a diary for a reason. They think that their lives matter. Some of my diarists, um, one in particular, Marie Sorkin, who ended up being a very significant 20th century American Jewish intellectual, the longtime editor of Frontiers magazine. When she was 15, she was convinced that she would be an important figure. And she wrote her diary knowing, just knowing that people would want to read it. Now, sadly for Marie Sorkin, nobody had read her diary since 1915 until I read it in 1990, whatever it was, 1997, 1998. Um, but she wrote it in this very elaborate style. She clearly was expecting that people would want to read it. Good That's for one, her. Yeah, it's a very, it's a document that clearly she meant to be read by other people at some point. Most of the diaries that I read are not like that. <laughs> They're, you know, a record of people's lives. They don't bother to explain who anybody is. I read two and a half years of one girl's diary in Chicago, and it was clearly the book itself, which is at the Chicago History Museum, was clearly one of many books. It starts and ends in the middle of a sentence. There was a diary book before it and after it, and who knows how many more. She shared a room with her sister. Never in the diary does she name her sister. She just calls her R in the diary. I had to look at census <laughs> records to get her sister's first name just so that I could say what her sister's name was. That wasn't wow. that hard to find, but it's an example. That was not written for other people to read. You know, it was for her, for her. She was writing it for herself. It was her space. And expressing yourself in that way could come from a lot of motivations. There's the adolescent motivation that somebody like Hall, the psychologist, would talk about where this, or Erickson, later Eric Erickson, later in the 20th century, would talk about this is a moment of identity formation that they're asserting their own identity and their own personhood by writing. There were people who did something unusual and wrote about it, like some of those girls who went abroad, didn't necessarily keep a diary all their lives, but they kept a diary while they were in school abroad because that was a special moment. There are girls who keep diaries specifically around the time of their confirmation, which for all the critiques then and now makes the point that they thought it was significant. So the diaries are wonderful, but letters are also great. And another set of sources that I really enjoyed were love letters. And in many cases, you only have the man's letters because the woman was more likely to keep the letters than the man. But I did find a couple of sets where you had both sides of the correspondence, meaning that both people kept the letters. They handed them down through the family. And at some point, somebody said, you know what? These should not be moldering in an attic or a file cabinet somewhere. They should be in an archive. And listeners... If you have family materials out there, they should not be moldering in a file cabinet or an attic. Give them to an archive. They'll get a copy and they'll be preserved. Public service announcement there. Um, and so I have these great love letters. And you can see people working out in real time. They don't want old-fashioned, traditional marriages. They want modern marriages. These are educated young women, educated young men. They have opportunities that their parents didn't have, either because their parents were immigrants or were moving up the economic ladder slowly. The children have more education and they're very aware of it. They're aware of their privilege and they're aware of the fact that they can make a life for themselves, the kind of life they want to make. They're writing letters about how they want to have a modern family and a modern life. And he's not going to tell her everything to do. And she's not going to be the only one to do household tasks. It's just wonderful. The, these voices reach across the ages and they beg to be heard. And when they are heard, they tell us something about the way that Jewish girls are dealing with modernization both in their Jewish lives and in their secular lives, as girls, as women, as Americans, 
that they are coming of age in a moment when the world seems full of opportunity. And it's not like nothing bad ever happens. There's, you know, some of these families are violent, there's trauma, but they're in this moment of opportunity. And my favorite part of working on this book and on revisiting it myself, actually, in the past couple of weeks, was just hearing those voices demanding to be heard. You're you're giving our listeners a real gift because I mean, for for years we've been saying versions of your Jewish history, your Torah is authentic Torah, your wisdom is authentic wisdom, and I think I think people believe us. I think they do, and we have. But like, it still sounds a little cliche, right? When you say to people, write down that correspondence, save the family letters. It will matter to history. Like that's practical and it's true. I always reflect on how, like, sometimes with really ancient stuff, like 3,000 years ago, we find mm-hmm. somebody's, like, argument with their neighbor about their farmland or whatever. And, like, they never thought that anybody would be talking about that in a few thousand years. But when we have that rare source, it can really alter how we understand that time period because we have so little. So, like, truly, sincerely, this is a moment to remind our listeners that, like, whatever you create in the world, whatever you write down in a, in a diary or whatever you create for others, it has the potential to be world-altering and history-altering. So I'm grateful to you for making that really sort of practical. I have a final question that is an unbelievable gear shift, and it is the fact that we are with somebody who is an incredible scholar of Jewish studies and is also maybe known to some of our listeners as a three-time champion on Jeopardy. So first off, Mazel Tov. But I wanted to share with you that ever since the beginning of this podcast, and I'm sharing with our listeners too, we've had a step in our editing process that I refer to as playing Jeopardy, which is that occasionally I say to one of our guests, whatever you want to close with, close with. You'll have a closing thought, whatever. And then I tell them, I will create the question afterwards Mm -hmm. that meets whatever you say. So I call it playing Jeopardy because, of course, on Jeopardy, you get the answer first and then you have to come up with the question. So we're with somebody who's a three-time Jeopardy champ. I'm not going to ask you how – I'm not going to ask you to teach us about Jeopardy. Um, maybe maybe a future podcast you'll tell us what it's like to be on Jeopardy. But I am going to ask you to close in whatever way you'd like and then maybe I'll throw in the articulate, beautiful, wonderful question that tries to meet your wisdom that we're closing with. So. What would you like our listeners to to leave with as they reflect on 1860 to 1920 Jewish girls coming of age in America? Well, when I at the time that I wrote the book, the word intersectionality was not much in use, right? Uh, so Kimberly Crenshaw had you know developed this term, and it was sort of in the early 90s into the mid 90s, it was being used in a critical legal theory and critical race theory, but it wasn't. It was even within academia, people did not talk about intersectionality. So in the book, I talk about what I call the tripartite identity of Jewish girls as Jewish, female, and American. Today, I probably would use the word intersectional to describe that, but that was just not, it's not a term that was in use widely at the time. But here we are in 2023. And I would say that for me, the biggest lesson is about intersectionality, is that these girls were Jewish and they were female and they were American. You can't pull out any part of that identity. They were always all those things. The metaphor I use in the book is that it's like a kaleidoscope where the patterns shift every time you turn the kaleidoscope and that sometimes one part of the pattern will seem more important or more prominent than the other, but all the pieces of the pattern are always there at the same time. So there were spaces, for instance, in a confirmation class where Jewish girls were mostly doing Jewish, to use another term we would use today. There were spaces where they were mostly American, for instance, girls who got involved in the suffrage movement. There were moments when what really mattered was that they were women, right? Girls and women. That's what mattered the most, whether it was a new kind of opportunity or whether it meant they didn't have an opportunity. All of those things, they were all of those things always, all at once, at the same time. And the way they thought about themselves and their understanding that they were important in the world, that to me is one of the biggest takeaways of the people who are in the book. Getting to share their stories and excavate them and to use your term, amplify those voices was really not just a pleasure, but also a privilege. And it speaks to us today. You can be more than one thing all at once, all at the same time. That's where the energy comes from. That's a lesson that I really continue to take with me. Thank you so much, Melissa Clapper, for joining us. This has been a fantastic conversation. Thanks so much for having me. This has been a real pleasure. And thanks so much to all of you out there for listening. We hope you've enjoyed this conversation. We hope that you'll tune in again in the future. 
We want to close out this episode by encouraging you to be in touch with us. That's how we close out every episode, because we really, really love hearing your visions, your ideas, questions, all of it. You can be in touch in all of the following ways. There's our social media handles, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, all of those. You can hit us up at at Judaism Unbound. There's our email addresses, dan at judaismunbound.com or lex at judaismunbound.com. If you want to send us some vision of yours, some thoughts, some idea, whatever you've got, And you can also head to our website, judaismunbound.com, and check out the show notes for this episode and for all our other episodes, and just learn more about our work, the Anyashiva, all sorts of things that we're doing, judaismunbound.com is where you learn more. Another thing is that we, of course, deeply appreciate those of you who are able to support us financially, which you can do on either a one-time basis or via a recurring monthly donation at judaismunbound.com slash donate. The last thing that I'll say is that support for this episode of Judaism Unbound comes from the Ashman Family JCC in Palo Alto, California, whose vision is to be the architects of the Jewish future. The Ashman Family JCC empowers you to experience Jewish paths toward a life of joy, purpose, and meaning through innovative Jewish learning and wellness programs, community building, and initiatives to develop the next generation of Jewish leaders. Learn more at www.paloaltojcc.org. And with that, this has been Judaism Unbound.